All right, well, good morning. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. Today we are uh, really getting to the heart of the issue of Paul's letter. Last week we concluded in chapter 1 uh, that by Peter, he concluded the chapter by talking about holy men, men who were prophets and they spoke as the Spirit moved them to write. They didn't speak from their own resources, they didn't speak from their own knowledge. Instead, Peter says in it that these men were moved by the inspiration of God to convey the truth of God's word. But inevitably, we'll find, while there are still faithful and truthful preachers of God's word, and there were truthful prophets of God's word in the Old Testament, there were, right, by, right side by side of them, were false prophets, false teachers, even back in the Old Testament. And today, really not much has changed. We also have today still solid, faithful teachers of God's word, and side by side is still the danger to believers that there are false teachers out there in the church or within Christian organizations or whether it be someone who claims to be a Christian and they speak for God online or maybe it's an author who claims to be a Christian author who writes books claiming to to speak for God. No matter what uh, source they come from, false teachers are still alive and well in our day and age. And Peter really wants us to be able to recognize them. And so today, that's, that's what, the heart of what we're going to be looking at. In, in my first high school job, I worked at an ice cream shop called Knudsen's Ice Creamery, and I worked there for about six years. And one of the jobs I had was being an ice cream scooper. And uh, that job was, was fun. It was interesting. But the other side of it was that after I scooped their ice cream, I then had a work the cash register and, and make sure I checked out the people. And uh, before I was ever allowed to use the cash register, though, my manager, Shay, at the time, she told me, okay, now, David, this is the most important job. Whether you, whether you learn anything else, the most important thing is making sure the money is right, the money is real that we're getting. We're not going to accept any fakes. we to make sure that you know that what you're receiving is legitimate or else it not only just hurts the business, because we just gave away free ice cream. We, we also gave them real change back for their fake dollar. So if you learn nothing else, pay attention. And the problem was that, uh, to me, all the dollars looked the same. I mean, I didn't really know how to distinguish between a legitimate one, and so she ended up showing me. She says, okay, here's $100. Now, is it real or not? I don't know. So that, that was the problem. I, I had no clue to tell. So she began showing me, well, there's a lot of ones that will look blue, just like this, and that's fine. But you have to look, and there's, there's a watermark as you look here, and you should see Benjamin Franklin's face. The crazy thing is that a lot of people actually did fake so well that it was someone else's face in that watermark, but it, it's fake. It's not real, but it has a watermark on it, so you have to know that it's the right person in the watermark. And then she said, well, you can also feel on the shoulder, there's ridges that you can feel that distinguish that this is a legitimate one. And on the ribbon, you'll see that there's, you know, $100 going up and down, and then sideways, you'll see a Liberty Bell. And these are all things that the government has implemented to prevent us from, you know, uh, from accepting a false dollar. And so, for me, it was, it was a learning experience, and I learned what legitimate ones were and which ones were fake. But over time, though, you, you were amazed at how similar some of these fakes were. They, some of them felt the same, they looked the same, some of them had that security feature, but they weren't legitimate because they didn't have all the right features. And uh, that's really kind of what we're dealing with, how to know to separate the reals from the fakes, how to spot a false teacher. And so Peter is going to kind of give us some distinguishable features that sets apart a false teacher from a genuine teacher of God's word. Today we'll be unmasking what a false teacher looks like. And he gives us five distinguishable characteristics of a false teacher, as well as describing the destruction that God has for those that lead other people away from the truth of, of God's word. So let's read our passage. We're going to just read the first 11 verses of 2 Peter chapter 2. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. 
And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. But by covetousness, they will exploit you with their deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world, of the world on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, Whereas the angels, who are greater in power and might, do not even bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So there, there's a lot there. Uh, but let's just start with the first distinguishable characteristic, the first trait of a false teacher. And the first one is that they secretly introduce destructive heresies. They secretly introduce destructive heresies. We see that in verse 1. I'll just read it one more time. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. <clears throat> now, there are no false teachers who are going to go around openly telling you, hey everyone, look over here, I am a false teacher. What I'm about to tell you is a lie. I hope you believe it, but I'm going to tell you things that aren't truthful. Uh, no one's saying, come here, listen to me, listen to me. I have things to tell you that are not true. They're not, they're not that obvious. They're obviously very secretive. They like to worm their way into places where they cause the maximum amount of damage. And false teachers, the thing that's so tricky about them is that they appear to be godly people. They appear to be uh, friends of the church, friends of those who are real believers. But in reality... They're agents of the enemy, and their teachings, their actions, they're destructive to the church. Satan's most subtle operation is to present false teachings about the Word of God from within the church itself, and then use that teacher to pose as one of us, as a friend, as a trusted companion, as a respected person, and then once that person worms their way into that inner circle, that's when they really begin to deceive and destroy from within and turning people away from the truth. And God's word, it has so much to say about God's view on people who present false teaching, who, those who uh, pretend to be friends, but in reality they're enemies of God. And again, this letter, it's a warning. It's not just for the Gentiles back in the days that Peter wrote. This uh, passage today is for us, very much so, because false teachers, like I said, are very much still alive and well in our day. They are just as prevalent today as they were back, in, went back when this book was written. This book is simply a warning for us to be on guard, to set a defense against those who claim to know Christ, and yet their true intentions are to lead other people astray from the truth. Peter doesn't want any false teachers to be allowed to enter into a church and to then carry out their deceptive work. He writes it so that we will recognize so that we'll see the characteristics of a false teacher and remove them from spreading any kind of teaching that would either hinder a believer uh, from growing further in their walk with Christ, or if someone's on the fence and is not a Christian but is looking and seeking to find out the truth, he doesn't want a false teacher to pull them away entirely from continuing to seek for the truth. Since Satan cannot take away our salvation, he's, he's going to do everything in his power to make sure that a believer is left with doubts, so that they're left with uh, questions in their mind. Is really what I've been taught true? 
And in turn, that will cripple your effectiveness for Christ because you're going to be battling with doubts and, and questions. And it's all because of the teachings of a false teacher. False teachers, though, they're not something that we should be surprised about. They're not someone we should be um, thinking that we'll never see them. It's clear that we will see them. Jesus tells us that they're out there. They're on the prowl. He tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. You see, they, they pretend to be innocent. They pretend to be nice people. They seem just like any other believer. They may use the same lingo. They might say some of the phrases that we're accustomed to hearing. But when they say those phrases, they mean something entirely different. And when you really get to know them, when you really find out what they truly believe, that's when you find out that they are wolves in sheep's clothing. One of the first encounters I had with a false teacher uh, was back when I first got saved. I uh, was in fifth grade at the time. I was 10 years old. And my Bible teacher at the time, my, uh, my leader for that class, uh, I respected her. I looked up to her as a person. She claimed to have studied the Bible a lot longer than I had. And she you know, went to a prestigious seminary. Uh, and so she, she was well-versed in it. She could quote things. She could uh, speak very authoritatively. Uh, and when she spoke, she commanded the room. And so uh, when she accepted this, this job at a Christian school, she accepted the position contingent on her accepting the doctrinal statement of that school because that school was part of the church. It was an extension of the church. And one day, uh, the Pope of the Catholic Church, he passed away. And she went on to tell us about how a great man he was and how great of a, uh, a person he was and how ultimately she knew for certain that he was going to go to heaven. And everyone was kind of going around, kind of praying and, and thanking the Lord uh, for him. And then it came to me, and I said, and, I, and it was my turn to pray or to, to thank the Lord for sending him to heaven. And I said, uh, no, Miss Louie, the Pope believes that he can do good things to go to heaven. And if he's believing that, I said, then he's not in heaven. And uh, she was a little bit taken back by that. And uh, the whole room kind of gasped because no one else had said anything about that. And, um, and she said, no, David, Christians and Catholics are the same thing. They both believe the same thing. They both go to heaven. They're just, they believe certain things that may be a little different, but they both are going to heaven. And I said, no, Miss Louie. And I had, just, I had just learned this verse because I had just gotten saved, Ephesians chapter 2. And I said, no, Miss Louie. And then I quoted back to her the verse, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I said, that's not true, Miss Louie. He's not in heaven if he believes that. And uh, needless to say, she wasn't happy with my response. I mean, here I am, a 10-year-old, confronting my teacher and telling her, that what she just told the class is a lie, and that you can't go to heaven by, through good works. And uh, the thing is that she's, the lie she's teaching is that a person can earn salvation through good works. That event ultimately opened up a case to figure out more about what she really did believe, and it turns out that she really did not align with the, the reality of what the church uh, believed. She believes something entirely different, but she said she believed that same doctrinal statement. And ultimately, uh, the board at the school, they let her go because they felt her teaching was destructive. They felt her teaching was leading people uh, astray. And so she was never there the next year. But um, regardless is that uh, she was teaching false things. If you look at the heart of what she believes deep down, it's not so much about the Pope, it's more so that she denies that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient payment for our sins. She believes that it's Jesus' sacrifice plus your own good works for salvation. 
And that's the lie that she was trying to convey there. And we as believers, we could pass it off and brush it off, but in reality, we have to be on guard for these kind of teachings because these teachings are everywhere. And it's just very subtle things like that, but there are false teachers out there. And they're found in all sorts of places, whether it be churches, Christian schools, Christian camps, missionary conferences, you name it, they're out there. They are secretly hiding out in places where believers come to worship God, where believers come to grow in their faith, and there they are, ready to attack from within. They're intentionally mixing in false teachings with the truth of God's word. And one of the most common tactics that you'll find they use is that they use things that the Bible has plainly spoken of, such as, um, you know, the the inspiration of God's word being through, uh, through God, and they'll simply deny it. They like to deny things. They like to deny things that are clearly spoken of. They will deny the Bible is inspired by God. They will deny the Trinity. They will deny the deity of Christ. They will deny the virgin birth. They will deny that his death was sufficient for our sins. They will deny that his burial and his resurrection happened. They deny the value of his blood that was shed for us. They deny the eternal punishment that God has for those who don't trust in him. They deny that salvation is by grace through faith. And um, that's, that's the pattern. They're, they are, if you look at the pattern of, of a lot of false teachers, they deny things that are clearly spoken of in the Bible. They are deniers. And in fact, just a several years ago, a Christian missionary organization in the Bay Area had a member on its board who claimed to be a fellow believer. He claimed to be a man of God. He claimed to love the Lord. He claimed to be saved. He claimed to have a true, genuine relationship with God. In fact, he was well accepted and spoken of as a godly man by other local assemblies. And uh, yet one day he was asked the very simple question of, is Jesus Christ God? And he said no. He, He denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He blatantly denied that Jesus Christ is God. And the board members were shocked to find out that they had someone believing such a thing. And uh, it didn't just stop there, though, because the next board meeting, they all came together to kind of boot him off. But at this board meeting where they voted to kick him off, he brought with him his doctrinal statement, believing something, believing that Jesus Christ is not God and wanting to convince them that indeed he is not God. And ultimately they kicked him out for his false teaching, but it didn't just stop there. He then found the mailing addresses of every single person in the local assemblies and tried to mail them a copy of his false teaching, hoping that he would garnish a following, hoping that he could convey people and convert people to his belief. That's the thing about uh, these false teachers. They're not satisfied with their false teachings being kept to themselves. They want to spread the false teaching to anyone who's willing to hear, to anyone who's kind of on the fence about that idea, and maybe they'll be turned to to the falsehood that they're trying to promote. They're militant about their approach. And so Peter reminds us, be on guard. There are people out there, even in assemblies, even in local churches, who do not hold the same beliefs that you believe. Peter says the ultimate issues with false teachers is that they can speak well of Jesus. They may even call him Lord. They may claim to have even been bought by him, just like this man who was on the board. And yet, uh, they fail ultimately to acknowledge Jesus as God. They fail to acknowledge him as Savior. They fail to acknowledge him truly in their hearts as Lord. And these false teachers, it says, even deny the Lord who bought them. You see, the Lord's payment on the cross, it was sufficient to purchase salvation for the whole world, for all of mankind, but it's only applied to those who trust him by grace through faith. Those false teachers, though they've been bought, they have never been redeemed. Redemption is only applied to those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and that those who acknowledge him and his payment alone as sufficient for their sins. The fact is that these False teachers, they were never truly born again. And and we know that because in verse 1, it says here that they bring upon themselves swift destruction. 
It's the punishment for a life of not only rejecting Christ, but then going on to preach false teachings and destructive heresies that would lead other people away from the truth. The only reasonable punishment for that is eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. And so that's the first uh, characteristic of a false teacher, is that they preach and teach destructive heresies secretly. The second uh, trait of a false teacher is that they blaspheme the way of truth. They blaspheme the way of truth. And that's seen in verse 2. It says, And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. These false teachers, they're attractive to the masses. They draw in a large crowd of people because their message, it's, it's easy to hear. It's very easy to listen to because they often don't call sin for what it is. They often compromise on God's word. They often lower God's standard of holiness in order to fit in with their own lifestyle. You know, it's very interesting because if you look at a lot of false teachers, you find out that most of them, or a good portion of them, actually are struggling with some kind of sin themselves. There is maybe some immoral relationship they're involved in. Or maybe they are having homosexual tendencies. Or maybe there's some other kind of sin in their life. And in order to justify their lifestyle, in order to justify their actions, they tend to lessen God's standard of sin. Or worse, they don't even call, sin for, they don't even call it sin. And uh, it's all to justify their own sinfulness. You'll see that most of their teaching is surrounded by God's love, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his goodness. And uh, they entirely ignore or eliminate from their preaching his wrath, his judgment for sin, the punishment for those who don't live godly. It's entirely taken away from their message. These false teachers, though, they can read the temperature of the world. They're pretty sharp. They know what the world is wanting to hear. They know the things that are going to make them popular. And so that's where they capitalize on. They teach people that, you know, living sexually immoral lifestyles, that's, you want to live with your boyfriend or girlfriend, that's okay. You're homosexual, no problem. God has room for you. They say, you know, you can, you can, be, you can still live the way you want to live and practice sin, it's no problem. They promote the idea of self-love. Indulge yourself in whatever your desires are. They say that the, the current worldview of the Bible, it's outdated. You know, it's not suitable for our day and age. Let's try and modernize it some way. Let's adapt it to, uh, to hear what the people want to hear. 2 Timothy 4 warns of this. It says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. These false teachers, uh, even if you're a believer, they push this antinomianism uh, ideology saying that, you know, if you're saved, okay, you're free to go on living however you want to. It's no problem. If you want to sin, go for it. God's already saved you. You're going to heaven. You already got your free ticket. Indulge in whatever you want. God's okay. And uh, the, it's, it's such a popular idea because ultimately it's what the world wants to hear. And in short, they... These false teachers, they don't teach the truth. Instead, they blaspheme it, and in, in, in the process of doing that, God's name, God's honor is disgraced because of the lack of sound teaching. So that's the, second, that's the second thing, is that they blaspheme the way of truth. The third characteristic of a false teacher is found in verse 3. It says, By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words, for a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their, and their destruction does not slumber. These false teachers, they're not only just popular, but they use their popularity to make themselves extremely wealthy. They're uh, greedy men that deceive people into giving them money. And a lot of them uh, hold to a prosperity gospel, or hold to the health and wealth gospel that God wants you to be incredibly rich, that God wants you to be healthy, God wants to bless you. And, uh, and if you want it, therefore, they say, you just need to give. Because whatever you give, let's say you give $100, God will give you a hundredfold. So that'll be 
And they have examples of people who are, you know, down on their luck, homeless, and maybe on the streets. And suddenly, they gave their last few dollars in the offering, and suddenly now they're a doctor. And now they're making $200,000 a year, and it's all because simply God has blessed them because they chose to give. And um, they say, you know, God wants to do the same to you. And if you don't know where to give, look no further than my organization where I keep 100% of the profits. But look no further than here to give because God will bless you through giving to me. And um, some of the false prophets, some of the false teachers that come to mind are very popular on TV. Uh, names you'll recognize, Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, L. Osborne, Kenneth Hagen, Joseph Prince, to name a few. All of them teach this prosperity gospel. All of them are deceivers. All of them uh, will exploit you for money. Possibly one of the most bold ones, I was just looking, uh, very limited, just look for it, but you can watch it on YouTube. Jesse Duplantis and uh, Kenneth Copeland separately have both asked their followers for $38 million for a private jet. They told their followers that God told me in a dream that I need to preach the gospel to the whole world. And the only way I can do that is by buying a private jet because I cannot be polluted by the thoughts and the filth of the common folk on those planes. I need to be focused on the message he has for me. And God told me in this vision that if I buy this, whatever jet it was, $38 million later, then I'll be able to preach effectively the false teaching I'm about to teach you. And um, they're exploiting people. They're using things that they said, these revelations they had from God, these, these promises of blessings to these people in the future, they're using them in order to make themselves extremely rich. Extremely rich. And uh, it's really, it's, it's pathetic. They prey upon people who are desiring to be fed spiritually. And these men are not concerned about their souls. They're concerned solely what is in their wallet. What can I get out of their pocket? for my own personal gain. And uh, it's awful. It's awful what they're doing. And it, and it seems as though these people have been on TV for decades, and they just get away with it. It seems as though they're able to take advantage of people by feeding them these lies in order to get rich, and it seems like they'll never be punished for their behavior. It seems as though their punishment has been delayed, or it seems as though they just are prospering with no end in sight. And so I think to myself, well, what gives? Will God finally judge these false teachers for leading people astray? Will God finally judge them for robbing people through their deceptive words? And that's kind of what Peter then transitions into. He, he takes this, in, in the middle of describing the characteristics of a false teacher, he takes a five-verse pause to just remind us, kind of as an encouragement, but also as a warning uh, to those who follow after false teachers, or for the false teachers themselves, a warning about the destruction coming, the destruction that God has planned for them. And uh, it says that he will act swiftly in bringing about judgment. There is the judgment on these false teachers. It's looming over them day by day by day, and it's growing larger and larger. It's not something that God is ignorant of. It's not something that he's powerless against. And to remind us of God's judgment in the past, Peter lists three examples in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that demonstrates God's readiness and willingness to bring destruction upon the wicked. This is seen firstly with the angels. It's seen with the ancient day, uh, ancient world of Noah's day. And it's seen with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And looking at these examples, like I said, we can be encouraged that God does deal with the unrighteous while at the same time, he still cares for the upright. God is clearly able to distinguish between the two. He knows how to judge the ungodly and how to deliver the righteous. So the first example Peter gives us of God's judgment on the wicked is seen with the judgment of angels. It tells us this in verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. There's also a parallel uh, verse in Jude 6 that I'll read. And it says, Jude 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains 
under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So we read here, the angels sinned. It says they did not keep their proper domain or their proper position. And though the Bible does not go into great lengths to satisfy every curiosity of every detail we want to know, we just know simply here that the angels, they sinned. Angels, they are wonderful beings that God created. They're awesome. They're powerful. They're great beings. They were set apart to serve and glorify God. But we read at some point, Satan, who was once called Lucifer, talks about him being discontent, dissatisfied with this position that God gave him. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be like God. He wanted a more elevated position than God had given him. And we read about the rebellion and fall of the angels in in Revelation 12. It says that a third of the angels followed Satan in his rebellion against God. And because of that rebellion, because of that sin, it says that God acted swiftly in judging them. It says here God delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And the, the argument here that really is being promoted by Peter here is that it's, it's an argument of greater thing to a lesser thing. It's saying that if God is faithful in condemning angels who are greater, mightier, more powerful than us mere humans then how much more is he going to punish those and how much more ready and able is he to punish these false teachers who are just men? You better believe that he will judge false teachers just as he promised. If he's willing to do it for angels, he's willing to do it also for a lesser thing like false teachers. The second example of God's punishment on sin is found in the ancient world. It says in verse 5, And did not spare the ancient world but save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. There's also a parallel passage for this one as well that I just want to read, describing the ancient world's behavior. Um, It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and the birds of the air, for I am sorry I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. At the time of Noah, mankind through and through was evil. All their thoughts, all their actions were evil continually. And people, they often take reassurance in the fact that, well, if the rest of the world is acting a certain way, as if, you know, God could not judge us all, as if God could not punish the whole world for its entirety. And yet, that's exactly what God did. God acted upon judgment on this world for their sinfulness, for their unwillingness to live godly lives. He flooded the whole world in judgment. Only eight people survived that flood. And it's Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord and his family. So God here demonstrates that he is able, even when he destroyed the entire world, that he still was able to see that there are righteous people among them. And he delivered them. And so that's, that's part of what Peter is trying to remind us, is that God still delivers the righteous out of judgment. But at the same time, the point being that if God is willing to flood the entire world for sin, then how much more is he able to punish the false teachers from among this world. He is more than capable of doing that. Judgment day for them is coming very soon, and God will act swiftly. A third example that Peter gives of God's swift judgment on the wicked is seen in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 6 talks about this this judgment that he um, pronounced on Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, In verse 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to destruction, making them an example of those who afterward would live ungodly. Without going too much into the whole story, I think I can recap by saying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were a very prosperous place. It was very good land. And yet, Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked cities. They were cities that were full of perversion, These people were fueled by burning desires of homosexuality. 
These cities openly accepted and embraced homosexuals as if it was normal, which if you think about today, it sounds very much like our day and age. I mean, just as an aside, here I am preaching uh, in a month where sexual sins are openly accepted, openly promoted. We call it Pride Month to celebrate sin as if it's a good thing. And these cities back then, they were proud of their sins. They were proud to be accepting, to be open to this kind of lifestyle. And the world today is proud of the sins that they engage in. It's repulsive. It's evil that has consumed that society, and it's consuming our society as well, just as it did with Sodom and Gomorrah. In order for God to show his great hatred for homosexuality, to make an example of them, as he says he would, God rained down fire and brimstone on those two cities. They were obliterated reduced to ashes, completely destroyed so much so that historians today don't even know exactly where those two cities are anymore. And it's all because God wanted to make a point that to anyone who's wanting to promote that kind of lifestyle, to anyone who's engaging in that kind of lifestyle, that God does not tolerate that. That destruction is coming for those who engage and live in that way. And false teachers, they are in the forefront of promoting these kind of lifestyles. They promote homosexuality. They promote sexual sins. False teachers and immorality, like I said, they go hand in hand. Their false doctrine oftentimes originates from a lifestyle of sexual sins or some kind of other sin that they're engaged in. Continuing on, though, with uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we then read about the deliverance of a righteous man who you might not think of first when you, when you read it, but it says in verse 7, and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And if God is able to do that, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Out of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, out of this ruins of ashes, come three righteous people. God delivered Lot and his two daughters. Another example of God's ability to deliver the righteous while at the same time condemning the wicked to eternal judgment. And uh, as I read this and as I was studying this passage, you know, if I only had the book of Genesis to go off of, I would not have originally come to this conclusion that Lot and his daughters were the righteous ones. I would not have thought um, that that would ever be said of him. Because if you read just Genesis, you look and you see Lot and you think, man, this is a rather worldly person. This seems as though a man full of compromises, a man full of failures. And you might even doubt in your mind if this person is saved at all. But here to remind us uh, that he is a righteous man, in case you felt like you read it wrong, Peter writes here twice, righteous Lot. God saw beyond just what we read in Genesis. God saw that Lot had genuine faith. God saw that he hated the filthy conduct of the wicked. God saw that he loved righteousness. To further prove this point, Peter writes that his soul was tormented day by day after hearing and seeing all that he saw in Sodom and Gomorrah. It says that he suffered and was suffering by the bombardment of the daily perversion of their gross immorality. And again, I, another aside, I got to keep saying it, it sounds like our day and age today. The bombardment we experience with the perverse things we read in articles or see in the stores, or get pushed by the TV or shows. All of it, we're constantly bombarded. We can't just go out, even for an outing, without seeing some store or something promoting this gross immorality. And it's like in your hearts and your souls, you're just tormented by seeing all these things because you just long for a day where people would stop calling evil good and good evil. You're, you're tormented in your soul, just longing for the day where God will righteously judge sin and call it for what it is. You're longing for the day where there will be holiness for God's people to fear him, 
for the world to acknowledge that God disproves of this thing. But for now, people are stuck on calling evil good and good evil. But that's the point that that Peter is trying to make here, is that uh, in the end, if God is willing to destroy two major cities with possibly hundreds of thousands of people, we don't know the exact number, but if he's willing to reduce these two cities to ashes for a sin like that, then how much more willing is God to destroy those who blaspheme the way of truth? These false teachers, they will have their day very soon. The ungodly teachers have a date reserved for them in the future for judgment. Final and ultimate reckoning will occur on the day of judgment for them. And so that was, that was a brief pause that Peter took. He, he's, saying, he's answering the question, will God finally judge these, these wicked men? And the answer is yes. Yes, God will judge these teachers, just like he did with the angels, just like he did with Noah's days, just like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. While at the same time, God reminds us that he has not forgotten about the righteous. He sees our afflictions, he sees our righteousness, and he will deliver us from that day of judgment. And so Peter closes this section by going back to those descriptions of a false teacher. He has two more distinguishing characteristics of a false teacher and how we can spot them as fakes. Going back to our points, we're going back to point four. It says that they are immoral. These false teachers are immoral in their lifestyles, in their own personal life. Verse 10 talks about this. It says, And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. We said it before, false teaching and impurity often go together. They don't walk according to the spirit. They walk according to the flesh, it says. They indulge in their fleshly desires, it says. They openly promote a lifestyle of others they openly promote immoral lifestyles to others who are willing to listen. How many churches nowadays can you see, even on their leadership boards, of people who are openly gay or openly, uh, openly living with their boyfriend or girlfriend? There's a lot of people who are accepted in church, on, in church leadership that claim to be Christians, that claim to know the Word of God, and yet their leadership, you see already that they're accepting of sins from the top up. And... Um, it's because false teachers have been allowed to permeate into that church. They've been allowed to spread their false teaching into that church. And that's why we see a lot of, a lot of churches who claim to know Christ, they have, a lot of false, they have a lot of people on leadership who live sinful lifestyles. So they're immoral in their personal life. The fifth and final thing that, they give, or that Peter gives as a description of, of these false teachers is that they despise, they despise both human and angelic authority. They despise both human and angelic authority. We read about this in the last two verses, 10 and 11. It says, And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas the angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. It says here, they speak evil and despise authorities. They, they simply just ignore the fact that God has said that these are the people in leadership, these are the people that I have put into place. They, they ignore the fact that God forbids us from speaking evil of those he puts into position. But instead, these, these false teachers, they love to slander those people. They love to uh, really be bold enough and arrogant enough to speak freely and openly about those who God has elected as our leaders as our people who are governing us. And it goes beyond, though. It goes beyond just speaking poorly about leadership of human government. They then go talking about even angels, even angelic authorities, they have the audacity to speak evil of. Although angels are greater in power, greater in might than these false teachers are, even the angels would not dare pronounce a reviling accusation against what, they, what it said here as a glorious one before the Lord. The glorious one just refers to angels who are in positions of authority. And to 
to, to explain what all that means, there's a parallel passage found in Jude, verses nine, 8 and 9, to kind of explain what exactly is being talked about. And it says in Jude, uh, verse 8, Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So this verse is kind of interesting because it, it's something we wouldn't have otherwise known. It, it reveals to us a little sneak peek of what goes on behind the scenes that we're completely unaware of. But apparently there was a time when Mark, Michael, the archangel, contended with Satan over a dispute surrounding the body of Moses. The dispute, again, this is speculation, I have no idea. But this is purely speculation. So this is a moment where I'll tell you this is not in the Bible. But it could be simply that it could be surrounding the place of where the body was buried. Because God chose a location which was undisclosed to people. It could be that, you know, possibly it was to prevent future generations from building a shrine and worshiping Moses. It's all possible. We have no idea. All we know is that um, it's really not clear, but there was a time when Michael was contending with Satan over the body. And the point is, is that Michael, the archangel, recognized that Satan has a position or an authority over the world of demons. And even though Satan has no jurisdiction over Michael the archangel, even Michael would not bring a reviling action, accusation against Satan. Instead, he left it up to the Lord. He said, the Lord rebuke you, meaning that it's the Lord's job to rebuke Satan. And that's not an archangel. And yet, though these false teachers are not God, Though these false teachers are not even an archangel, these false teachers think that they can speak evil of even angels. And you can see them do it on TV. You can see, you know, a lot of these uh, televangelists, they'll say things, you know, they'll say, if you want the devil to flee, you say, I rebuke you, Satan, I rebuke you. And they go on saying as if they can rebuke Satan himself, thinking that somehow they have the power and authority to do so. And... Uh, you know, a lot of people there are trying to learn the truth. They're trying to learn what the Bible says, and they, they, they walk away saying, well, maybe that's what we're allowed to do. Maybe we're allowed to rebuke the devil himself. And yet the Bible doesn't ever talk about that. The Bible doesn't ever encourage us to do that. The Bible just simply tells us to resist the devil and that he'll flee from you. But at no point does God instruct us to go about arrogantly and boldly assuming that we can somehow rebuke angelic beings. It's, it's defiant behavior like this. It's this bold, arrogant behavior that these false teachers have. It's, it's behavior like that that marks a false teacher. They have no fear of authority, whether it be human authority or angelic authority. They have no fear. They feel as though they are their own authority. And uh, so just, just to recap briefly, be on the lookout. These are just the brief characteristics of how we can spot a false teacher. They introduce secretive, destructive heresies. They blaspheme the way of truth. They are driven by greed. They are immoral in their own personal lifestyle. And they despise both human and angelic authority. And this week, it's just a, simply a rough sketch. This is just a basic outline of what a false teacher looks like. Next week, Matt uh, will be preaching on a more full detail. He'll, he'll draw in and, and fill in the details of the sketch a little bit better as we complete the rest of the chapter. But what we do know, what we do know for sure is that the false teacher, their end is very near. God will judge them for their wickedness and for leading people astray. In the meantime, it's our job to be alert, not just in churches, not just online, um, but the people you come across in your daily lives, people who profess to know Christ, the people who are in your Christian circles, there are false teachers out there hoping to gain a following. There are false teachers hoping to pull you away from the truth of God. They are there hoping to cripple your spiritual walk. And for those who are not believers but are on the fence, those who maybe are 
seeds that are thrown on thorny grounds that haven't yet taken root, haven't yet taken root. Those false teachers, they're like the birds in the air, ready to snatch the seed away, ready to take you away and, and totally take away any kind of desire to seek the truth anymore. Be aware for them. I just want to say in closing that um, in just this last year, there have been multiple false teachers that have come into this church trying to gain access into this, uh, this body of believers. There's been at least three or four people who actively wanted to join this church with the hopes of spreading their false teaching. Uh, it couldn't have been more than a couple months ago where one of the elders had to literally rebuke one of the people in the foyer to tell him to leave because he was becoming abrasive, because he was trying to spread false teaching. And I just want to say I'm thankful that as believers here in this church, we have elders here on guard. We have elders here who are watching over the flock. Elders here who care for the flock because they don't want false teachers sneaking their way in. They don't want false teachers getting into our midst. So praise the Lord that we have faithful elders who look out for the spiritual well-being of the, of the believers here. And as far as practically on our, on our end, the Bible tells us to be on guard for the false teachers. If something doesn't sound right, always bring it back to the Word of God. It doesn't matter whether it's, it's one of us speaking. It doesn't matter whether it's something you heard online, something you read in a Christian book, something you heard at a conference. It doesn't matter. Bring back, no matter what's said, bring it back to the Word of God. Compare it to the truth, the ultimate source of truth. Don't just take someone's word at face value. Look and says, what does God say about that? Is that actually accurate? Second thing to do is, is look at the fruit of their lives. It says you'll know them by their fruit. Uh, you know, does their life, does it resemble love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Are those things evident in the life of someone who's teaching you something? Or is their, li is their, is their life's, is their life uh, a representation of bad fruit, of living ungodly, of living uh, for themselves, of living worldly? Look at someone's life. You can tell very clearly by the action someone does whether or not they're truly a follower of Christ. And third, we can just pray that God would give us discernment. No matter what you hear, ask for discernment to be able to spot whether something is truthful or not. Just ask for discernment and pray that God would give you the ability to have an eye to perceive uh, and distinguish between the real teachers and those who are false. That God would not allow them to gain hold into our church, but that we would quickly um, spot them and not allow them to spread their lies. Let's just pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the clarity of it. We're thankful, Lord, that you give us these warnings. We're thankful, that, Lord, that you give us things to be on guard for and things to look out for. Lord, we, we can look at these and, and, and see who are the real ones and who are the fake ones that are trying to deceive the, the flock. Lord, we pray that we would be on guard for these kind of things. We pray, Lord, that we would be uh, aware that not everyone who claims to know you, Lord, is a true believer. And Lord, that we would be able to spot the false teaching and Lord, call it out for what it is. So Lord, we just pray that you would give us discerning uh, discerning uh, hearts and that we'd be uh, receptive to, to your word and, and being able to, to understand um, what is true and what's not. Lord, just pray that you just protect us from false teaching, protect us from ungodly doctrine, and that we would continue growing in our walk with you. We pray all those things in your name. Amen.